on the title. He talks about himself this way over and over and over. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. And that's a title that shows up elsewhere. And uh, Isaiah writes about this Son of Man figure in Isaiah 52 and 53. And I read something from there last week, and I will this week and next week and the next week. Isaiah 52 and 53 talks about this Son of Man and says this about him and us. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was numbered with the transgressors. That's what we're going to see tonight. We're going to see Jesus numbered with the transgressors. And if you've been following along with us all year, you should stop and say, even if you know the story really well, wait, how did it come to this? Because he's amazing. Like, I'm not sure I believe in Jesus and all the things you guys believe, but I've been listening, and this guy healed the sick. He had compassion. He, uh, he told great stories. Uh, he loved his neighbor. How does it come to this, that this man is condemned, arrested, and put on trial as a criminal? How could this happen? And it's the case that we often think, this is sort of a weird, sort of uh, kind of weird modernism view, that you know, weird, mature, older, more sophisticated society, nothing like this would ever happen here. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure we would have done any differently. Tonight, like last week, there's a lot of text. There's no groans. That's good. Uh, I'm going to do it a little differently, though. I'm going to read a bunch of it at the beginning and summarize some things as we go and jump around a little bit. And then halfway through, I'm going to read a little bit more. So uh, we're going to pick up in chapter 22, verse 1. Here we go. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. And then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. What happens next is Jesus prepares to celebrate the Passover meal with his uh, disciples, and then he does do so. We'll come back to that later. And after the meal, he has a couple conversations. He prepares his men for his death, and he tells them about their future and the things they need to do. And then he has a real hard, heart-to-heart conversation with his father uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to come back and look at that a little bit later. Now let's pick up in verse 47, chapter 22, verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd, and a man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And what immediately follows is a little kerfuffle. You know what that is? There's a little physical violence. There's a bunch of people that don't know how to do physical violence, try to do physical violence on each other. And then uh, Jesus puts an end to that. And uh, we'll pick up in verse 52. Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out against a, as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour in the power of darkness. Well, what happens next is Jesus is arrested. He's taken away. He's taken to the high priest's house. And uh, the next few verses tell us that Peter, one of the chief disciples, follows along. And Peter, who was adamant that he would follow Jesus to the very end, uh, does not do so. The text tells us how Jesus 
uh, as he's being examined and held, Peter, fearful of being uh, counted as one of his disciples, flatly denies Jesus three times. And uh, then Jesus is mocked and we'll, by the, those keeping him. In verse 66, we'll pick up. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. It's also called the Sanhedrin in some places. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And so they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. And then they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. And then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You said so. And then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all through Judea and from Galilee even to this place. And at this point, uh, it becomes clear to Pilate that he's dealing with a Galilean. And he thinks, oh, I can just sort of shove this little delicate matter onto Herod, the guy who oversees Galilee. So he ships Jesus and this problem over to Herod. Herod's curious, does a little poking and prodding, comes to the same conclusion as Pilate. He hasn't done anything. He kicks it back over to Pilate. We'll pick up in verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. After examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! A third time he said, Why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. They were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. And so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. And he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. For whom they asked... But he delivered Jesus to their will. All right, I am done reading for now. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this evening, the opportunity to get together and study your word. We pray you meet with us, sharpen our minds, soften soften our hearts, uh, show us uh, the truth. If there is a truth, and if you are real, be kind to show us both, we ask, Lord Jesus. Amen. About 100 years ago or more, there was a pretty famous... Theologian, doctor, musician, all at once, a bit of an overachiever, named Albert Schweitzer. Schweitzer was known in his theological studies for his view of Jesus and history. And uh, we, we, we disagree on many things, Mr. Schweitzer and I. But he wrote this about Jesus and his relationship to history. He wrote, Jesus, in the knowledge that he was the coming Son of Man, laid hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on that last revolution, which is to bring all ordinary history to a close. But the wheel refused to turn. And so he threw himself upon it. And then it turned, and it crushed him. Instead of bringing in the eschatological conditions, that means the peace, the hope, the joy, the justice that Jesus aimed for, instead it destroyed them. 
The wheel rolls on in the mangled body of the one immeasurably great man who is strong enough to think of himself as a spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is hanging on it still. So that's Schweitzer's view of uh, Jesus. Great intention but ultimate failure to, to change the world. I have another analogy that might make a little bit more sense to you, but it makes sense of what Schweitzer is saying. It's from what I believe objectively to be the best book adaptation to a movie, a uh, movie adaptation of a book from The Princess Bride, um, after Nigo Montoya has successfully tracked down the six-fingered man and is chasing him through the castle. And immediately after the six-fingered man dastardly, evil, bad guy that he is, slings a dagger across the room and potentially mortally wounds him. You hear Nigo Montoya saying, sorry, Father, I tried, I tried. He's mourning his failure. And the six-finger man begins to put the pieces together and says, you must be that little Spanish brat I taught that lesson to all those years ago. Simply incredible. Have you been chasing me your whole life only to fail now? I think that's the worst thing I've ever heard. How marvelous. Let me put these things together. Did Jesus get that close? Just this close to changing the world? To bringing in the kingdom of God, but ultimately fall short? Is what Schweitzer says is true. Did he throw himself on the wheel of the world, broken and stuck as it is, only to be broken by it? Did he pursue it perfectly, only to fail right here at the end? And if so, is it not the worst thing you've ever heard? Here's a question I want us to wrestle with. How do we know that Jesus, in the end, was not a tremendous failure? You heard what I just read, right? How do we know he wasn't a tremendous failure? As we read the text tonight, and read some more later, here's what I believe. What looks like a tremendous, tragic failure is all part of God's grand plan to save his people through Jesus. Every bit of it is part of God's grand plan to save his people through Jesus. So, two points here. The plot for destruction and the plan for deliverance. So buckle up. We're going to move really fast to this first one. The plot for destruction begins immediately. If this is the opening scenes of a movie, we're dropped down into this intrigue. We have the chief priests and the scribes plotting to kill Jesus. They can't do so uh, because they're afraid of the people, the text says. And man, there's a lot of people. If this is the movie, the city is packed. There's hustle and bustle because it's the Passover, the Day of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You're like, what's that mean? It means that every faithful Jew in the whole world has made their way to Jerusalem. This is the big holiday, the celebration of how God saved his people and when he did so. And so they've come back for an entire week-long celebration. The city's packed. And irony of ironies, everyone has come to celebrate how God has given their people life. While they're doing that, the chief priests and scribes are trying to figure out how to kill the author of life. They're trying to kill Jesus. Uh, other ironic things about the text are really interesting. The chief priests and scribes are the people that have all the power, but because they're afraid of the people, they have no power. They, they don't feel like they can do anything. They fear an uprising. They fear a riot. 
But in verse 4 and 5, something really interesting happened. One of Jesus' own men comes to them and confides in his willingness to betray them. And the text says they are glad. This is the possibility of an inside job. We can do this with hundreds of thousands of people in the city in such a way that no one will ever know. But irony of ironies, these, these men, these leaders, who think they're doing what's best for the nation, for the people, for themselves, they don't know it, but they are unwittingly in league with the devil. Verse 3 tells us that this insider, Judas, is being prompted, motivated, manipulated by the Prince of Darkness. Now, merely mentioning that may take some of you and say, Hey, that whole science and faith thing you were talking about, you need to go to that like 10 over. Hey, we're talking about all kinds of spiritual realities every week. And uh, I think by the time we finish looking at all the evil machinations that take place in this text, it is not crazy to say there was something terrible and sinister at work. Something deeply sinister. So uh, we have all this irony in the plot of destruction. And, and then you see all the people involved. We're only six verses in, and already we have the chief priests and scribes and all their power and authority. We have an inside job, one of Jesus' own men. And we have the fact that it's an outside job. The prince of darkness is involved. This is bigger than just these people. It's bigger than just Israel. This is something of a cosmic battle. In other words, we already have this really powerful triumvirate at work uh, in some ways. And the involvement extends from there. In verses 54 through and following, we, we see that in the end, this will involve all the disciples. That even Peter, who vehemently denies that he will go with Jesus, even to his own death, even Peter, falls away and denies. One of his closest friends, all the other disciples will abandon him as well. In verses 66 and following, the uh, council, we read this. These were the most respected religious leaders of the day. They knew God's word. They were supposed to know God's word and ways and wisdom better than anyone else. And what they do in verses 66 to 71 is a mockery, a sham of a trial. The text tells us it starts at daybreak. Uh, The other text tells us it's still dark. In other words, they want to get this trial started and over before anyone has a chance to find out what's going on. And uh, if you're learning where all the evidence is and where the real confession is that Jesus supposedly makes, you're like, I didn't really see anything. That's because it's not there. It's a mockery of a trial. This was supposed to be the highest ethical court in the most ethical religion in the world. It failed. And they carry him in his arrested state off to Pilate in the hopes that Pilate will put this man to death. Pilate and Herod are this tag team of judicial failure. They, they both find no guilt in him at all. Pilate says four different times, I find, nothing, I find nothing that he's done wrong. And yet they both fail to release him. And in the end, verses 24 and 25, Pilate decides that their demand should be granted and he hands Jesus over to their will. This is from the best government in the ancient world. It really was. The most regularly organized run Government in the ancient world, run by the Romans. 
And they hand Jesus over to the will of a mob that's crying out to crucify him. So the, the last, like, involved, and this is all the people involved, is the they. And I'm, you may have called it in verses 18 to 25, the last paragraph we read. But there's a they. They cried out. They wanted. They, they, they clamored for. They, they yelled crucified. The crowd, the people, it seems, have gathered together as a mob, and they want Jesus dead. The overall picture, if you add it all up, sort of aggregate, is everyone wants him dead. This is the most inclusive <laughs> reign of tyranny uh, that you can imagine. And uh, what's clear in the end is that everyone seems to want Jesus dead, though he's innocent. That he's done nothing. No one's found him guilty. In the middle of the storm of madness, of people trying to kill him, Jesus is at the center, the eye of the storm, innocent. And uh, despite the fact that Pilate and Herod and others find him guiltless, people want him dead. It should make no sense. It does make almost no sense. One of the hymn writers uh, about a hundred years ago put it this way. Why? What has my Lord done? What makes this rage and spite? He made the lame to run. He gave the blind their sight. And he goes on to say, We consider all the wonderful, amazing things that Jesus did to bring healing, hope, peace, and love to the world. How do you explain this rage? How do you explain this desire to put him to death? Jesus has his explanation. When he's arrested, when the council comes and arrests him in the garden at night with torches and sticks and soldiers, he says, you see me every day in the temple. Every day you see me. You could have arrested me any day you wanted to. And you come out like I'm a robber. But it's your hour in the power of darkness. Jesus realizes that the the noose has been pulled and that he's in their trap and in their power and uh, and it's over. The the chief priests, meanwhile, what must they be thinking? Like only a few minutes ago they were thinking, there's no way we can kill this guy. I don't know how we're going to do it. And now they're thinking, this is the best plot ever. Like, wow, everything fell into place. We were scared of the people, and now all the people want him dead. And Pilate and Herod, you know, I don't know why they made the decisions they made, but they gave us what we wanted. This is amazing. This is the best plot ever. And uh, what this means for Jesus is there's a cross, crucifixion, uh, one of the most painful deaths in the ancient world, awaiting him. This reminds me of a movie. This is, you know, so if I... I, I, if I spoiled the Princess Bride for you, I don't care. Uh, you know, it's your fault. I, I might spoil this for you. Uh, so, in uh, Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation, most recent Tom Cruise blockbuster, uh, earned like half a billion dollars as usual. Uh, there's a scene near the end, this really tense conversation between the protagonist, the antagonist, uh, Solomon Lane, and our protagonist, the indefatigable Ethan Hunt, played by Tom Cruise. And um, Lane, uh, uber-competent, thinking he's in control, making demands, says this. He says, and he's sort of uh, boasting in some ways of the machinations and the intrigue of the plot. He says, from the moment I killed that young lady in the record shop, I knew you would stop at nothing to catch me. And I also knew that Ilsa wouldn't have a choice. That's another person that's sort of caught in his net of intrigue. And he goes on and on. And at one point, Hunt interrupts and says, You were certain we would end up where we are. 
right now. In other words, Hunt says, I recognize your plot. And then he goes on to say, but then again, so was I. And he says, I know you, Lane. And he goes on to describe what Lane's like. And he finishes by saying, and that's how I know I'm going to put you in a box. See, Hunt knows the plot all along the way. And he has a plan. And the same is true here. There's a plot to destroy Jesus. But there's a plan all throughout the midst of it that's a plan of deliverance. Every step step of this thickening plot, Jesus' plan is unfolding. Let's go back. Let's go back. When the men, when the chief priests and elders are plotting Jesus' death at the beginning of the feast, the feast of unleavened bread, the Passover, Jesus instead decides to celebrate the feast and prepare his men. And so I'm going to read a little bit of it from verses 14 to 20. He is preparing the men for his death. Starting in chapter 22, verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at the table, the apostles with them, and he said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He knows he's going to suffer. He knows he's going to die. I tell you, I won't eat of it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that it's poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. See, the meal they're taking now has been a meal that the Israelites had taken for over a thousand years. It was a celebration commemorating how God rescued them. They did not exist. They were slaves in captivity under the power of Egypt, and God brought them out powerfully by finally, after warning Egypt over and over with nine different plagues, saying, had enough. Tenth plague, I'm taking your sons. And he sends a plague that takes the firstborn of every child, every, the firstborn child of every creature, basically. But he tells the Israelites, make a sacrifice, Put the blood over the door hold of your house, and I'll pass over your home, and your firstborn won't suffer. And so in that way, Egypt finally bends to the will of the Lord. They expel the Israelites. Israel goes on. They're free. They become a nation. And they were told to remember this. Remember that time God could have taken you or just left you there, but instead he passed over you. And he passed over you because you had a substitute. You had a substitute sacrifice that marked you. And Jesus calls this the fulfillment of that. In other words, Jesus is saying, that meal so long ago where God passed over your oldest son, that points to me. This time, he's not passing over the son. He's taking the son. I'm the son, and I will die. It's my body that will be broken. It's my blood that will be poured out. I am the one and only sacrifice that sets you free, that gives you life. Jesus is saying, that meal points to me. And my death is for your life. He is the fulfillment of the meal. And then he goes on afterwards to explain to these disciples of his actually do have a future. You see, it's, it's really simple if you're following through the plot to say, like, man, this thing is over. Jesus is going to die. We've got a betrayal from the inside. That guy is gone. Peter, the chief uh, disciple, denies Jesus publicly. That guy is never going to recover. Everyone's just going to scatter. There will be nothing left. And Jesus, after he finishes the meal, saying, Hey, I'm going to die, says, Now let me tell you about your future. 
First of all, you're called to serve like me. You're going to be servants like me. But also, when the kingdom comes in power, this is the language that he uses, uh, you're going to preach the gospel of the kingdom. You're going to be like me. The kingdom will grow. And he goes on and tells Peter in uh, verses 31 and 32. Um, This is important enough to actually read. He tells Judas, basically, indirectly, um, yeah, woe is you. Um, I hate to be you tonight or in the near future. But he tells Peter in verse 31, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Point out a few things. Jesus knows Peter's going to let him down. When you turn again, in other words, you're going to fall. You're going to, you're going to run away. You're going to forget me. You're going to act like you don't know me. But when you turn, strengthen your brothers. Uh, and, and Jesus knows exactly what Peter's going to do. He knows the plan. And he prepares his men. He strengthens them forward. He encourages them. This is not Jesus showing off here at death's doorstep. Instead, he is serving his men, preparing them for the future, that they might be faithful and ready. Uh, the next place Jesus goes, the next conversation he has, is with his own father in the Garden of Gethsemane. In uh, verses 39 to 46, uh, Jesus moves from having a conversation with his men to prepare them, and they are they're clueless. They don't get it. They don't understand. Jesus is trying to prepare them. They're not ready. When they go to the Garden, they're falling asleep, so they're paying attention. And so we find Jesus in verses 39 to 44, largely alone. I'm going to read this. I think it's the last text we're going to read tonight. And Jesus came and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed. And when he came to the place, he said, Pray that you won't enter into temptation. If you look down at verse 45 and 46, you see they sleep instead. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. All right, so um, it's sort of my belief, and I can't prove this, of course. I haven't interviewed everyone in human history. It's sort of my belief that perhaps no one ever suffered psychologically as much as Jesus did right here. I can't prove that, of course. So I'm not trying to prove it. But let's consider the facts. He knows he's going to die. He knows all his friends are going to abandon him. He knows he's prepared them for that. And they're still sleeping. Moreover, he actually knows what's going to happen on the cross. And it's more than just physical death. Anyone in the ancient world knew what the cross was going to be like. Painful impalement through the wrists and the feet. But actually worse than that, slow suffocation and uh, dehydration and public mockery as you die over the course of one or two or three or four days. He knew that. That does not seem to be his greatest concern. Instead, he's concerned about this cup. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. And the cup is this complicated metaphor. But most scholars, and I'm I don't know if I'm quite a scholar, but scholar-ish. Basically, we piece together the Old Testament evidence, and and what we think is going on here is that Jesus is called on the cross 
to bear the punishment, the wrath of, of God upon all the sin that's been committed by his people. That he is literally dying for the punishment of others. And he's willing to do so. But he's struggling with the willingness to do so. Some people struggle here with lots of... Let me admit this. Lots of struggle in this text. Jesus is struggling, and if you're reading this, you should be struggling. Um, you know, why would God do this to his son? We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, but even some people really struggle with Jesus struggling. Like, how can Jesus, son of God, be struggling here with God's will? Well, he was human. 100% fully human. Last I knew, most humans that are healthy humans do not want to suffer. He does not want to suffer. He does not have a death and suffering complex. He, he does not have a death wish. Okay? He's a healthy human being. But he is willing to suffer. He is willing to die if he must, if it's the Father's will. And he's wrestling with his call as God's substitute for his people to take this cup. And in the end, he is not just a human. He is the perfect human. He's the perfect human. He does the Father's will. He doesn't, he doesn't, he's not looking forward to it. He asks for a way out of it. But in the end, he says, Father, if it's your will, I'll do it. And uh, there are some theologians who think Jesus literally was sweating blood. Uh, that's been known to happen on one or two occasions, supposedly. Um, I'm not quite sure I'm convinced. Nevertheless, he is in agony. He's alone. It's possible this is the worst moment of temptation in his life. And he's faithful to the end. He's going to follow God's will. He's going to do as he's asked. Uh, some people will look at this and what happens on the cross and say... You know, Christianity, you guys are nice and all, but I'm not sure this isn't cosmic child abuse. That, that phrase is thrown around by uh, skeptics and atheists occasionally. And uh, you know, if, you, if you wonder that yourself, and you're not just being nasty by throwing that phrase around, I'm more than willing to talk about it. But this is not that for lots of reasons. First of all, Jesus, although he's a son, is not a child. He's a grown man. He's also eternal. He's been as the Son of God, he's existed forever. And in the end, he willingly goes. He has a choice. He chooses to do so, and he does so out of love. And he does it because he's doing what the Father wants. It's because he wants what the Father wants. This sort of relates. If you if you go back to uh, possibly dying, indefatigable, but possibly dying, Inigo Montoya, um, you know, is is the six fingered man seeks to in this thing um, Inigo Montoya is still fighting and uh, the six-figure man says good heavens are you still trying to win you've got a you've got an overdeveloped sense of vengeance it's going to get you hurt and uh, as Inigo Montoya fights back he gains strength until he actually has the upper hand and as it's clear that he's going to win this fight, he says, offer me money. And Six-Finger Man kneels, begs, yes, power too, promise me that. Offer me everything I ask for. And angry but sincere, anything, anything you want. And you, you know the scene. He stabs him in the, in the gut and says, I want my father back. And then he says some words I can't say. <laughs> but appropriate to the occasion. Um, hey, that makes perfect sense. He wants his father back. Jesus wants what the Father wants, and the Father's will is to get His Son back. The only deal here is, to get the Father and the children back, Jesus doesn't have to kill someone else. He has to die Himself. He has has to be run through. And He's willing to do it. 
To bring Father and Son back together, to bring Father and people back together, Jesus willingly goes to the cross. And I just want to point out, what seems like a clever plot is God's plan. That Jesus is in control all the way. The text ends in verse 25 with them being given over to their will. Uh, This is scary. Being handed over to the will of a mob that wants to kill you. And it seems like Jesus is helpless in the throes of their plot. You read this text. It's clear every step of the way that Jesus knew their plot, knew what was happening, and told them about it. There's a betrayer. Yeah, it's that guy right there. Woe to him. Um, Someone's going to deny you. Yeah, Peter, you're going to deny me. You better get ready and pray. He knows everything that's going to happen. He's preparing his people for it. Nothing catches him by surprise. He's in control. And Ethan Hunt and Solomon Lane, we both know where this is going to end. For Jesus, it ends at the cross. And Jesus knows this is God's plan. It's been determined. Verse 22 in chapter 22. And it's the Father's will. Verse 42. But it's also Jesus' will. He's willing to go. This is the plan of deliverance. Jesus given, broken for us. Not some tragic accident in history. Not just some moral example of self-sacrifice and love. But this was the plan. God's provision. God's plan of redemption to bring people back. A Savior who comes to live and die. Last story. I think I've shared this story probably like one or two times over the last couple of years. Hopefully it wasn't like last month. Uh, I don't think it was. I think it was a couple of years ago. On the uh, last day of July 1941, a siren sounded at Auschwitz. It announced the escape of a prisoner. And that led to some pretty horrific reprisals. A German commandant. Uh, gathered everyone together and began to walk along the the company of people and uh, pick out ten prisoners who would uh, be put in a concrete bunker and slowly starve to death. The uh, commandant pointed to one man, a Francis Gajanis... My, my Polish is really bad. Gajano, Gajanizix, Gajanizix, Francis, Francis, and uh, Francis cried out in despair. Uh, my poor wife and kids, but that wasn't very much despairing. My poor wife and kids, and uh, simultaneously, this this older gentleman stepped out of line. Uh, old sunken eyes, glasses, and the commandant snarled, what do you want, pig? And uh, he took off his hat and he said, uh, I'm a Catholic priest, I'm an old man, he's a young man with a family, I will take his place. And uh, the commandant agreed. So the priests and nine others were sent to a starvation bunker. They sang hymns and they prayed when they had the strength. Two weeks later, four of them were still alive, including this man, this priest named Maximilian Kolb, uh, so on August 14th, the German uh, commandant and his soldiers gave this Polish priest a lethal injection, and he died at the age of 47. Flash forward about 40 years to October 10th, 1982, in St. Peter's Square in Rome. There's about 150,000 people gathered listening to the Pope. And the Pope is describing Maximilian Kolb's death. And he says this, This was victory, won over the systems of contempt and hate in man, a victory like that won by our Lord Jesus Christ. And listening in the crowd that day, that crowd of 150,000 people, 
was Francis. And his wife, and his kids, and his kids' kids. Many, many have been saved by the substitution of one. That's the beautiful picture. It's, it's a bloody picture. It's a picture of injustice. It's a disgusting, evil plot. It's also a loving plan, graciously, lovingly, willfully adopted by the Son to give His own life for His people. That's what Jesus does for us. All right, I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to do this. I pray for those, Lord, here struggling with this. 